Thank you, Larry. Good morning, church. How are we today? We're good? Awesome. Glad to hear it. Uh, I'm so glad that I learned to do math by hand. Remember, remember in school learning to do math equations and your teacher would, would be up there and, you know, write out the stuff on the board and show some technique, some way of moving the numbers around. Here's how you solve this equation. And there'd be a lot of steps. And you'd have to figure out which steps to take with each equation. And, and I think all of us, if we didn't say this, we at least thought it. I, I'm pretty sure I said it to my teacher, why can't I just use a calculator? And uh, maybe you said that too. And if your teacher was anything like mine, they probably said something like, well, you, mu you won't always have a calculator. Certainly, you won't be carrying around a calculator in your pocket at all times. Certainly you and every other adult will not be carrying around a small, high-powered computer that is connected to all the information in the world at all times. So sharpen your pencil and let's reduce some fractions. And so you'd, you'd get to work on this, right? You'd have your, your textbook and you'd be trying to work through these questions and you're trying to do it by hand on this on this on the paper, and, and there are all these steps. Are you, okay, is this an improper fraction? And, okay, am I supposed to cross-multiply here, cancel out the common factors? What do, you, what do you do? And so, you know, there would be all this anxiety, right? And you'd be sitting there trying to work through this thing. You're looking around at the other students, and it seems like everyone else is having an easier time with this than you. You ever have that feeling? And you're, and you're sitting there thinking, how am I going to get through this thing? And you have this resentment in the back of your head, like, why are we doing this? You're trying to picture a scenario in your life where you would have to, you'd be in a situation where you'd have to reduce fractions by hand in real life. Like, you, like you're hosting a party and you ordered two pizzas and one of them's cut into eight pieces and one of them's cut into 17 pieces. Like, and you're wishing that someone would invent a pocket-sized computer that could do this. And so for one or two or ten minutes, as you're trying to work through this thing, there would be all this confusion. Am I doing this right? Am I heading toward the answer or away from the answer? There would be what would be going on on that paper for you would just be pure chaos and struggle and heartbreak. So we're continuing our sermon series which is called Metropolis, the church in Ephesus. So uh, in the first century Roman Empire, in what is now Turkey, there was a city called Ephesus, and there was a band of Christians in that city. And we know a lot about that city and that church because there's a lot written about them in the Bible, and there's a lot of information about them outside of the Bible. And so what we're doing for basically this whole school year is we're going to uh, we're gonna kind of do a 360 view of this of this church in Ephesus, and so we're, um, we saw their origin story last week uh, in Acts 19, and then today we're going to start working through Ephesians, which is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus, and then in 2020 we'll go through both of Paul's letters to their pastor, 
Timothy. And so we'll get to really kind of dig into what was going on in that city in the first century. And so it's, it's going to be fun. Uh, I hope you think that's fun. I do. So just a reminder that our life groups are following along with this series. We've published study guides on our website. If you are not in a life group, uh, we would love for you to get into one. We're just scratching the surface here on Sunday mornings. And so uh, you can actually, uh, we've already mentioned our new app, Church Center. Um, You can browse all of our life groups right on the app and find one that suits you. You can do the same thing on our website, southanglychurch.com, or you can sign up at the Welcome Center and we'll get you, we'll kind of matchmake you with a group. And so I um, encourage you to do that. If you're here on Sunday morning but you're not in a life group, that's probably your next step in terms of, of going deeper at South Langley Church and going deeper with Jesus. Uh, so, Ephesians. A while back, I texted my friend these words. Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good. Now, about half of you in the room right now know that that's a key line from the movie Avengers Infinity War, and half of you might know that that's the second time I brought up that movie since Easter. Imagine, imagine uh, 2,000 years from now, some people get that text message. They get their hands on it. Maybe they find an old box somewhere with my iPhone in it. Okay, and, they, and so they have that text message. Imagine them trying to make sense of that text message. What would they start, what questions would they start to ask? Well, they start to say, okay, why did Dave call his friend Mr. Stark? That's not his name. He's, and he never once called him Mr. Stark outside of this one text message. And what was this mysterious illness that Dave came down with in 2019 that caused him to not feel so good? And why didn't he mention it to his wife or to any of his co-workers? And you can see that very quickly they would, they would be completely missing the meaning of the text, right? They, because there's this thing that's going on outside of the text that controls the meaning of the text. And if you want to understand the text, well, you have to have seen the movie, My friend and I have seen the movie, and so we use that as a common language. But if you don't have that reference point, you're going to go off course. The reason I'm telling you that is because that, that happens all the time when we read the Bible, that frequently when we read the Bible, there's something else going on that we need to, that the, the original author and readers would have known about that we don't necessarily know about today. And you need to know about it if you're going to read the text rightly, if you're going to respect the text rightly. In Ephesians, these moments are particularly dense, okay? In Ephesians, it seems like verse after verse is essentially, Mr. Stark, I don't feel so good. Verse after verse is referring to something that's happening outside of Ephesians itself. And so we need to kind of get ourselves up to speed as we, as we get into this letter. So let's get ourselves up to speed. So Paul was uh, a, a Jewish man, grew up Jewish, highly educated. Okay, uh, he would have by adulthood memorized um, the entire 
Jewish scriptures, okay, that, that we call that the Old Testament. It's in our Bible. Uh, in my Bible, it's just shy of 800 pages. He would have memorized that. We know that a big chunk of the Ephesian church also came from a Jewish background. They grew up Jewish. Probably most of them weren't as educated as Paul. Uh, but every, every Jewish boy and girl, uh, it was their schooling was, uh, was to memorize, study and memorize, the first five books of the Old Testament, which they called the Law or the Torah. And so, that, and so that's in the background for these guys. Uh, we also saw last week that um, the whole idea of the first half of Ephesians is that God is creating a new people group made up of both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, okay, who are united into one nation uh, through Jesus. They're freed from the grip of sin in their lives, and God is going to dwell among those people as if they're a living temple. And remember, Ephesus was the city with the greatest temple in the world at that time. Paul writes to them and says, you all are the true temple. That's where we're going. And so it's, it's going to be Jews and Gentiles united into this people that God is going to dwell among. And so because of that, in this first part of Ephesians, he's going to talk, uh, he's going to focus a little bit on the, the Jewish uh, contingent, and then he's going to focus a little bit on the non-Jewish contingent. And so what he's going to do in this first piece here uh, is really that first part. He's going to be focusing on, uh, on the Jewish uh, background and, and on the Christians uh, in Ephesus who have a Jewish background. Now you need to know, in the time of the New Testament, the Jewish people were pretty, pretty beaten down and pretty confused. Go back a thousand years from the New Testament, and uh, there were a couple of great kings, David and his son Solomon. And under David and Solomon, the, uh, the kingdom of Israel, it was Israel at the time, was, was united as one kingdom. They were a great uh, world power. And, and Solomon built this uh, amazing temple in Jerusalem that God came, and 2 Corinthians 7 says that God's presence his visible presence came to dwell in that, in that temple in Jerusalem. It was kind of the golden age for Israel. After Solomon, though, there was a, a civil war. The, the kingdom split in half into the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Uh, in 722 BCE, the Assyrians rolled in and wiped out the northern kingdom. Uh, but... And then in 587 BCE, all that's left is uh, the southern kingdom, Judah. The Babylonian Empire rolls in, and they lay siege to Jerusalem. And in 587, Jerusalem falls, and they destroy Solomon's temple, and they take the Judahites captive and deport them to Babylon to live in captivity as a captive nation. And so over the course of a few hundred years, this nation has been much diminished. Now you need to understand that, that these guys, I mean that's traumatic enough on the face of it, but these guys had this, this sense of national identity that God had placed a calling on them. Okay, if you go back all the way to Genesis 12, 
their patriarch, um, Abraham, okay, God had called Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a nation, and, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. And so they had said, we're this, this special people group that has been chosen to, to uh, embody the reign of Yahweh, our God in the world. God is with us. And that was really easy to talk about when they were, uh, when everything was going great. Right when under under David and Solomon, hey, look at us. No one can uh, no one can threaten us uh, militarily. Uh, we're prosperous. God is with us. We're fulfilling our calling as a nation. But then, it's just been trouble for several hundred years, and so they get to this incredible low point while they're in Babylon. Their their city is in ruins. Their temple is destroyed. The whole nation is captives right now, and they're going, what happened? You can read uh, some, of the, some of the Old Testament um, writings are just them trying to process what has happened to their nation. So, for instance, the book of Lamentations says things like this, Jerusalem, once so full of people, is now deserted. She who was once great among the nations now sits alone like a widow. Once the queen of all the earth, she is now a slave. If you keep reading the book, it's, it's gut-wrenching. After 70 years of exile, um, the, another empire rolls in, the Persian Empire, led by King Cyrus the Great. They conquer Babylon, and Cyrus has a more merciful uh, policy, and so he says to them, you guys can go back and, and go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. So they return to Jerusalem. Uh, they start rebuilding the city, rebuilding their lives, and they rebuild the temple. And so, and so they've, they've returned back to life as it was, but not really. The exile, the, their, their time in exile is over, but not really. They're still under foreign rule by the Persians and then by the Greeks and then by the Romans. They're never again a sovereign nation. Uh, and they've rebuilt the temple. But that thing that happened with Solomon's temple, where God came to dwell in it, it never happens. And if you read the writings of the rabbis from back then, they noticed. So, here they are. They're back in their homeland, but they're really shaken up. They're going, who are we now? Are we still the people of God? Where was God? Where is God? How do we go forward from this? And they lived in that space for about 500 years leading up to Jesus. Uh, by, the time, uh, by the time of Jesus, the rabbis had concluded that the reason that God had seemingly abandoned the people was because they hadn't been faithful to God's laws and that one day God's favor would return to them if they would if they could keep God's laws well enough, which is why uh, in, in the time of Jesus you see these really uptight, these guys are really uptight about the religious rules, okay? They're not just, you know, they're not just angry fundamentalists trying to steal your fun. No, they're, it, it mattered to them as a nation. So all of that is in the background, then we get to Ephesians, and Paul, Paul gives his initial greeting. And then here's what he says in verse 3. Watch this. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who blessed us with every spiritual blessing mm. in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Paul says, so God has done something. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Now understand that he's talking to people who, who look back over the past about 600 years of their history and everything that they see seems to be evidence not of God's blessing but of God's abandonment, of God's uh, withholding of blessing from their people. And Paul says, no, that's changed. It's not like that anymore. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And he says, God has blessed us because we are united with Christ. Now, the the New Living Translation is great. They try to make the English very readable. Um, In this verse, you can't, uh, the way they phrase it, though, you, you miss something that's in the original, which is the phrase, actually, is he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms uh, in Christ. He uses the phrase in Christ, and that's going to matter because, uh, because time after time in Ephesians, Paul is going to use the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. It's going to happen several time, times in this passage and several times outside of this passage, and you, you guys will dig into that a little bit more in life group. But Paul kind of gives his thesis statement. God is not withholding blessing. God has blessed us. How has he blessed us? In Christ. And then he's going to work through and explain the ways that God has blessed blessed, uh, this group of Christians in Christ. So he says in verse 4, even before he made the world, God, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in God's eyes. So there's this idea of, uh, of a, a chosen people being called. Again, that goes back to the Old Testament. That goes back to Abraham. And for, for a couple millennia, uh, this people group has believed that they were, uh, that they were chosen, God's chosen people. Paul says, yeah, you're chosen people in Christ. Verse 5, he says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Okay, there's this idea of, of being God's adopted children, which, again, God had said almost exactly that uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 14. You'll look at that in life group. Uh, Skipping down to verse 14, it says, The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised. One of the big words in the early Old Testament was inheritance, that that God's people, okay, the Israelites, would receive the promised land as their inheritance. God used the word inheritance. So there's all these echoes of of things from Israel's Story. Okay, you'll chase these few down uh, in life group, but let me show you the big one. So verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That's the New Revised Standard Version, which is a little bit clearer on this verse. Now, for us today, the word redemption 
has come to mean, it's, it's got a pretty general meaning that you, you restore your good standing. So a hockey team uh, goes to the Stanley Cup Finals. They suffer a heartbreaking loss in Game 7. They come back the next year and, and they win the Stanley Cup. We say that that team has achieved redemption or that they've redeemed themselves. themselves. Or we would say that if that ever happened to the Canucks. For the ancient Jews, redemption had a very specific meaning. In Greek, it's apolytrosis, uh, and it's the, it's the word that was used when you, um, when you bought a slave's freedom. And so in the New Living Translation, this verse is, God purchased our freedom. Because in the ancient world, um, slavery was part of the economy, which the Bible doesn't condone, but it was part of society. And there were a number of ways that a slave could, could earn or purchase their freedom. And essentially, uh, it, it came down to you or someone else would pay the price as if they were buying you as a slave, but then they would, uh, they would set you free. Now, slavery means something different uh, when your nation has been enslaved. I mean, it, it hits you differently when your nation has been enslaved, right? We can see in the United States that slavery, even though it's, it's decently far in the past now, how uh, it, it's, there are wounds that still haven't healed. It's, it's left this lasting mark on their psyche as a nation, and that was true of the ancient Jews as well. And so for the, for the ancient Jews, they had this, their current story was kind of this story of the exile not being really over. But they had, they had that story, but they had another story. And it's kind of their, their founding story as a nation. It's from the book of Exodus. And so Exodus tells the story of the, of the uh, ancient Israelites uh, growing from a family to a clan to a nation in Egypt. And Pharaoh the king was fearful of them, and so he enslaved them. And the story of, of Exodus is a story of God miraculously delivering them from, from slavery. It's a redemption story. They're, it's their founding story as a nation, and it's a redemption story. And so with that in mind, Paul says, in him, in Christ... We have redemption through his blood. By the time of Jesus and Paul, the rabbis were teaching that, uh, that one day God would put a real end to the exile. And the way that they were talking about it was they were, they were kind of mapping that story onto the Exodus story. They were saying God is going to end our current suffering the way that he did in the past. God is going to give us essentially a new exodus, a new redemption. And Paul comes in and he says, yeah, that thing you've been expecting has happened. God has done it. And God has done it in him. He's done it through Jesus. So you can see, you can see how um, 
that the story of Israel, the story of the Jews, has all of these, uh, these open loops, all of these questions, all these unmet expectations, and Paul picks them up here in, this little, in all these verses that we've been looking at, and he's picking them up one by one and saying, this question, God has answered that question in Christ. This, this open loop, God has closed that loop in Christ. This, this unmet expectation, God has, has fulfilled that and more in Christ. Again and again, God has done that in Christ. By the way, when you, uh, when you see this stuff, um, some of the stuff that we say around Christmas time starts to make more sense. So, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in, who mourns in lonely exile here, until the Son of God appears, and you're like, why are we singing about Israel in exile at Christmas time? This is why. But I'll save that for my Christmas Eve sermon. All of this leads us to a question. What is God doing in history? When we look at the trajectory of the universe, when we look at at the, the centuries, the millennia of human history, what is God doing? What's he up to? What's his plan? Paul tells us. Verse 10, and this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Depending on what translation of the Bible you have, uh, that phrase, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, bring everything together under the authority, will be translated a variety of, of ways in your Bible. It's a really interesting word. So what is God doing? What's God's plan? He's bringing everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So what does that mean? Well, bringing everything under the authority in Greek, ready for this, is anakephaleosathai. That's 19 letters. I had to reduce the font size. Anna means again, as in Anabaptist. Kephale uh, means head. Anna kephaleosathai means to bring things together under one head. It was the word that the ancient Greeks used uh, the ancient Greeks came up with, they added a lot to mathematics, right? And the word they used for the solution to a math problem, when you sum it all up, when you get to the answer, is anakephaleosathai. So here you are in math class trying to do this problem by hand. You get, you work through it, cross multiply, solve for x, whatever. You work on it for one or two or ten minutes, and it's a lot of struggle and chaos and heartbreak. You get a number at the end. You flip to the back of the textbook where the answers are, and you definitely haven't peaked yet. 
and you see that your answer is correct. And all of a sudden, everything you just went through, the cross multiplying, the canceling out common factors, whatever, all of that where you thought, is this right? Is this is this helpful? Is there a point to this? Am I completely off? All of it is uh, brought under the authority of, of this solution. All of it now makes sense in light of the answer that you've received. Paul is saying to the Jewish Christians, that's what God was doing through Jesus in your whole millennia-long story. And he's showed us examples. And not only that, but that's what God is doing in the universe. That's what God is doing in your story. He's summing up all things. And the middle of that math, the math equation of, the, of history is struggle and chaos and heartbreak. In the end, it is summed up in Jesus. Another way to uh, translate anakephaleosathai is to unite all things. Uh, Paul says elsewhere to the Corinthians that God's mission is to reconcile all things to himself. Here we are in 2019, and and people talk a lot about how we're increasingly fractured, we're increasingly polarized as a society, we increasingly, increasingly feel a lack of wholeness even within our own beings. Can we be united? Can we be put back together through Christ? Another way to translate anakephaleosathai is to recapitulate or retell You can tell a story different ways, can't you? One of the things uh, when we run our Marriage Builders course here, um, one of the things that you learn is um, that, oh, that an important indicator for the health of a marriage is how you tell the story of how you met. That when a couple starts telling this story as, you know, oh, I, I, I should have known back then, it was, uh, you know, all these red flags right there, that, that's a, a problem. But when you're telling the story, as some things, like some good things, some bumps along the road, but all of it leading to a good place, that's a marker of health for a marriage. So the question is, how are we telling the stories of our lives, and how are we telling the story of the universe itself? Paul is saying that God is, God is reshaping the whole narrative uh, through Jesus so that the story is told and is summed up in Christ. So, that's what God is doing in the history of the Jewish people. That's what God is doing in the history of the universe. So what do we do? Sometimes, sometimes people think that... Um, the Christian ethics, living as Christians in, in a world that doesn't acknowledge Jesus, uh, is, is complicated. And it can be. And there are some, some complex and difficult moral 
situations that, that we have to work our way through. Here's one way to think about it, though. Maybe our calling as followers of Jesus is to participate in what God is doing. Maybe our calling as followers of Jesus is that when God is is summing up all things in Christ, uniting all things, retelling the story of all things, and if you go outside of Ephesians, when God is reconciling all things, when God is making all things new, maybe our calling is to participate in what God is doing. You could say it this way. You could say we are summing up all things, people. Like we're, we're people who are summing up all things. That's terrible English. I'm sorry. If it's true that what God is doing is summing up all things in Christ, if it's true that what God is doing is anakephaleosathying, the universe, that's our calling too. Which leaves us with, I think, I think two challenges. Number one, how are we thinking about and talking about and participating in our own stories? I don't know what kind of a week you had. I know what kind of week some of you had. Some of us had a rough week. Uh, some, some of us feel like, feel like we're right, right in the middle of a math problem and we can't see a solution. Can we live with the hope that the solution is there? Can we speak about it with the hope that comes from, from believing that the solution is there? The other piece, if we're going to be summing up all things, people, is how are we summing up, how are we uniting, how are we retelling the stories uh, that we're engaged with in the public sphere? So, um, I don't know if you, if you saw the, uh, this, this, um, the sentencing for Amber Geiger this week. So just to catch you up, there's this, um, there was this court case in the United States, uh, uh, a police officer named Amber Geiger um, came home, she walked into the wrong apartment, and so there was a man there, his name was Botham Jean, and uh, she thought he was an intruder, and she shot him and he died. Um, she was convicted of, of murder and sentenced to five years uh, just this past week. Um, really complicated case. There's talk about how police officers are trained in, in that state. Uh, there's a race dynamic to it. Some people think the sentencing uh, was too lenient. Some people think it was too harsh. They dug up some stuff from her past that's a little ugly. Um, they... But there's a, there, there's a moment at the sentencing where the victims get to speak. And so the family of, of Botham Jean got to speak. His younger brother, Brant, uh, got to speak. And here's what he said. You, you should track down the video online. I'm not going um, to show it because it's hard to preach while you're crying. But he said to her, if you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. 
And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. He said, I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. I personally want the best for you. Uh, and I wasn't go ever going to say this in front of my family or anyone. But I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. He just says this in this courtroom. He turns to the judge and he says, I don't know if this is possible, but can I go give her a hug? And she hesitates and he says, please, can I go give her a hug? And, and he walks out from behind the stand and, and Amber Guy here stands up and they go and, they, and, and he goes and hugs her. For like a solid minute and a half, he hugs her. And, uh, and everyone's crying, right? And so here's, here's the thing, right? We could... We need to have discussions about justice and about public policy and about the way that laws are enforced and all, and all this kind of stuff. But what this guy did is he said, I've got my moment to speak into this, this case. And he, and he made a decision, I believe, to sum this case up in Christ, to retell this story in Christ. And, and in the midst of all the debate, one of the things that has resonated with, with people on, on every side and of every opinion is that this, this moment was, was something special and something good. And so our calling as we move into this world is can we be summing up all things people can we participate in what God has been doing all along and retell our stories and retell the story of the universe? We're going to move into communion now. Um, and, and communion is this, uh, is this, this practice that Jesus, uh, that Jesus gave to his disciples and he asked, he asked them and said, well, he commanded them to do this in, in remembrance of me. That the thing that God was doing through Jesus, that we would actually physically, like take a regular moment um, intentionally to physically participate in that. To remind ourselves in our bodies that we are part of that. And so we're, so we're going to take time to celebrate that now. And so I want to invite up the worship team.